0: Most people remember watching television in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina happened and the levees broke down in New Orleans. And it just was a level of destruction that you saw on the TV that you felt hopeless looking at it. You thought, how could this be cleaned up? How could this be fixed? How could it ever go back to the way that it was? Tonight in Revelation 16, we see God's wrath being fully executed. You see the wrath of a holy God stored up from the days of Noah being poured out on the earth. It's total destruction, it's total judgment, and it's total justice. You see God bringing humanity into his court, and they must answer for sin. The enemies of God must face up to what they have done in their attempts to deceive the world. Those who dwell on the earth must answer for taking the mark of the beast and rejecting Christ. And creation itself, before the new heavens and the new earth are displayed and creation finds its consummation, it's dissolved. And there is destruction, just like in the days of Noah's flood, and the Ark of Christ is the only escape. God is not slack concerning his promise. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love, but in Revelation 16, his anger, it trickles down upon the world, and then the levees break. The dam of His mercy that has restrained his wrath will be removed. And the day of the Lord will come. So we've looked at these different cycles in Revelation. We've seen that there are different literary devices that are used. We've seen the seals, we've seen the trumpets, and now we have bowl judgments in the fifth of seven cycles in Revelation. We have seen seven seals, seven trumpets that's used by the Holy Spirit and by the Apostle John to describe the age of the church. To show us the judgment of God in the world in the here and now. The judgment that is also to come. The seals and the trumpets represent the entire church age. But tonight, with the bulls, we're focused on the end. What you see in the sixth seal, you see in the seven bulls. What you see in the seventh trumpet, you see in the seven bulls. The bull judgments are showing us the end of the world in detail, who will be judged, what judgment will be like, what the scale of the judgment will be. It shows a good judge upholding his law, and only those who have built their houses on the rock of the words of Christ will stand. So I'm going to read for us in Revelation 16, starting in, in verse 1, and we're going to do the whole chapter tonight. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched "...by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw a coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Lord God, I think that um, I agree with my brother Peter Hess as I listen to him preach this text. That our familiarity with judgment as Christian people can cause us to gloss over passages like this, just to read them as part of our quiet time, just to read them as part of our devotion for the day, and not to really stop and think about it. We live in a world that has a big problem with this passage. They have a big problem with the idea of divine judgment. And as my friend Peter said, John 3.16 is no longer the Bible verse that the world knows. It is judge not, and that's where they stop. And Father, they apply it to you. They take your own word and say, he should judge not. But we see in the scriptures that you are just in your judgments. And tonight, I pray that they would both be a a warning and also, Lord, the scriptures would compel us with urgency to go to the nations, just as Brian and Sam have prayed about. We love you, Lord, and we know you'll be faithful to us as we sit with your word open with surrendered hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have three teaching points for you tonight regarding God's final wrath. Not a single one of them is filled with summer fun or holiday cheer. Uh, in fact, folks, we've got three chapters of apocalyptic darkness ahead of us before our next respite. Remember how last week I talked about those little, those little uh, breaks we get in Revelation where we'll pull off and we'll get a, a view of heaven in between the cycles? Well, it's three chapters before our next sight of heaven. But we can't run from these parts of the Bible. This is one of the main reasons that we are committed to faithful, expository, verse-by-verse preaching at this church. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to do a topical series on the wrath and fury of God. right? Nobody's saying, you know what I think will really bring them to church? You know what I think will really get the the neighborhood in the doors? A series on the seven bowls of wrath. Your secret to understanding life. you It just doesn't happen. But when you walk through the Bible verse by verse, you've got to deal with the Bible. You've got to face up to the text. You've got you to square up to it. You've got to realize this is something I claim to believe. You've got to seek to understand it and even give God the glory for the heavy justice that we see in this passage. So from here to September the 6th, Lord willing, it's tough sledding. It's a tour through judgment and wrath and destruction. And that is purposeful. I believe that the book of Revelation is written in seven cycles. I think I've been pretty clear about that. And whether you agree with me or not, I hope you understand that perspective. And with each cycle, the imagery gets more vivid. There's more moving pictures, more talk of the end of the end, more of a focus on what will actually happen at the return of Christ, not just on what's going on during the age of the church, but what's going to happen at the end of that age. And the bulls are an example of that. They are zooming in on the end. It's like when you get on Google Earth and you can zoom all the way out to you know space and then you can zoom all the way down and you can get down to your house at Seaford. We are zooming in on the end here tonight. So, here's our first teaching point. God's final wrath is reserved for His enemies. God's final wrath is reserved for His enemies. All of those who have opposed God throughout the book of Revelation are meeting their end in the seven bowls. The first four bowls are poured out on the earth and those who dwell on it. The last three deal with that unholy trinity, the counterfeit trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And in all seven together, we see the complete and total judgment of creation. And so what we're going to do for like 90% of our time tonight is we're going to be on point one and we're going to be walking through the bowls. So don't panic, okay, if we're getting towards 7.30 and you're like, he's got two more points. Most of the time we're going to be in point one, all right? We're just going to walk through the bowls. The first bowl is poured out in verse 2. It is poured out in the earth. There are harmful sores all over anybody who bears the mark of the beast. The second bowl is poured out in verse 3. It turns the sea to blood. There's death in the sea. The third bowl is poured out in verses 4 through 7. The rivers and the springs are turned to blood. The fourth is poured out in verses 8 and 9, where the sun scorches those who dwell on the earth with fire. So this is complete and total judgment on humanity and the planet that they live on. If you're looking at this and you're like, man, this sounds like, like the stuff that like global warming doomsdayer people talk about. Like there's going to be like some sort of you know, apocalypse in 70 years and we're all not going to be able to get water, right? Um, I don't know about all that, but the idea that God has built final judgment into this creation and that we are living on a ball of fire ready to burn up, yeah, that's real. That's real. That's not hard to imagine at all. That is the, the picture that the Bible paints for us. There's a real connection tonight between the bowls and the trumpets. To, to see that the bulls give us global judgment, you've got to look at the trumpets. Trumpet one blew hail and fire and blood, uh, came down on the earth after it was blown, and, and it burns up a third of the earth and a third of the trees, and a third of the grass, in chapter 8, verse 7. Compare that with the first bull. It's not a third. It's the whole earth. Trumpet, too, sounded, and a third of the sea was ruined, along with the creatures in it and the ships that were sailing in it. You saw that in chapter 8, verse 9. Compare that with the second bowl. It's not a third of the sea impacted. It's the whole sea turned to blood. Everything dies. The third angel blows his trumpet in Revelation 8.10. A third of the rivers and the springs are destroyed. Compare that with the third bowl. The rivers and the springs are completely destroyed. And then finally, when the fourth trumpet blew, a third of the sun and moon and stars are struck, which causes a third of the day and a third of the night to be ruined in chapter 8, verse 12. But when the fourth bowl is poured out, all of the people of the earth are scorched. No fraction is given. And so you can see how things have advanced in terms of judgment. It's not in part. It is the whole. The trumpets showed us God's judgments in the world in the here and now. They warned of a restrained, partial judgment. But in the bowls, it's not restrained, it's not partial. It is full on. God is pouring out His wrath at the conclusion of history. Each bowl speaks to the nature of final judgment. The first bowl is poured out on the land of the earth in verse 2. And so the very first thing to go is the territory in which the people of the earth lived and moved and breathed. It's where they worked. It's where they were born. It's where they were buried. And it's also the land in which they shook their fist at God. And they rebelled against God, and they rejected God, and they went along with the beast, and they called Caesar a god, and they took the mark, and they rejected Christ, and they went with the counterfeit. And now they answer for their sins in physical pain because they have no Savior, they have no mediator. So they are paying for their sins. The the boils breaking out in sores... It's meant to draw our attention back to the sixth plague that fell on Egypt. Because remember, the angels with the bowls are the angels of plague, and so it's made to make us think of the, the, the time of Moses and the Exodus. Exodus 9, verse 10 says, So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Second bowls poured out into the oceans of the earth in verse 3. So the second thing to go are the massive bodies of water that we depend on for travel and for trade and for sustenance and for industry. The sea, which you and I have barely been able to explore, right? We talked about that last week. There are parts of the ocean that less human beings have been to than the moon. Okay, so like we have barely even scratched the surface of the ocean. We, we don't even really know what's going on down there. God is there, there, There's probably fish down there. God's like, wait till you get a load of this thing. Wait till you see this thing, right? And so the most inexhaustible part of God's creation on earth itself will just be ruined by him in an instant. It's, it's a drop in the bucket to him. And in a moment, he will just bring it to destruction in his judgment. All the sailors and the sea merchants... They despair the fall of Babylon, the fall in the judgment of the world in chapter 18. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Talking about Babylon. They hate seeing the world destroyed. They loved the world and then again, at the very end in Revelation 18:19, "For in a single hour she has been laid to waste. What humans spend history building in terms of commerce and societal structure, God will just bring it down in a moment." Third bowl is poured into the rivers and the springs of waters in verse four. If the second bowl destroys basic commerce, the third one destroys basic sources of life. Rivers and springs are where we get our water from. For them to be turned to blood, it means we have no water to drink. And we all know that if you don't have water to drink, you die. And so that is what is signified here. As judgment falls on the earth, death comes with it. There is no surviving this wrath. The second and the third bowls remind us of the first plague that fell on Egypt. Exodus 7, verse 21, And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. fourth bowl is poured out on the sun. See this in verse 8. The people of the earth are scorched with fire and scorched with fierce heat as a result. And this is different from the fourth trumpet. When the fourth trumpet is blown, the sun is almost like a light bulb in your house that's threatening to go out. It dims and, and it darkens after a third of it is destroyed. There's no dimming here. There's no darkening here. Here the sun is actually turned up in intensity and it causes the people of the earth to be, to be burnt. What you have here is cosmic upheaval. Romans 1 depicts human beings Knowing that God is real from creation. They look at creation and they can deduce, there is a God who made this. But they suppress the truth of his existence so they can keep sinning and not feel bad about it. And what that leads them to ultimately do is to trade in the creator and to worship created things. So Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in the first four bowls, God is punishing that. He is showing the world the folly of their choice in the judgment itself. You trusted in dirt. You trusted in salt water and fresh water and brackish water and heavenly bodies and fish. All these created and temporary things. And now, as I judge your choice to reject me and embrace the counterfeit of the world, I will show you just how powerless, how deaf and dumb and mute your idol is as I uncreate it. And do the people who dwell in the earth, those who took the mark, do they repent in these moments of final judgment? No. The time is over. Which is why we should never take lightly when we hear the gospel of Jesus. The time to repent is over. Their hearts are given over to sin. God's wrath is coming down upon them. And as judgment falls, they become even more resolved in their rebellion. They were scorched by the fierce heat. See in verse nine, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. You know, some people now it's like a series of bad things will happen to them, and they're like, "Oh, the universe is doing this to me." Oh, there's no blame in the universe here. They know who's doing this. They know where the judgment's coming from. It's the God that they had, you know, suppressed the knowledge of His existence uh, all that time. It's Him, and they know it, but they won't repent. They won't give Him the glory. They just curse his name. They have hard hearts like Pharaoh, down to the very end, not relenting, not letting go of their love for Babylon, their love for the beast, the love for themselves. And to the very end they say, I know better than God. God will not get glory from me. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because you know what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, what God is doing in your life right now in a thousand ways, and, and you, you might not be aware of all of them, but he is shaping and he is molding you to look less like you and more like his son, Jesus Christ. He's making you into the image of the beloved son. Well, what has happened to these people here who followed the beast? They've been made into the image of the barbaric beast. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. So when we first meet the beast, what do we learn of him? And blasphemous names on its heads. He's a blasphemous beast. He hates Jesus. He hates the Father. He hates the Spirit. He is a blasphemer. The evil governments of this world that persecute the church, that's who the beast represents, they are blasphemous. And those that follow them, they look just like the beast. They are blasphemers. Now, as we go into the rest of the bowls, the focus of God's wrath moves from the earth and those who dwell on it to the counterfeit trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. The fifth bowl is poured out directly on the throne of the blasphemous beast in verse 10. And the result is the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the fallen world, it is plunged into darkness. Very reminiscent of the ninth plague that fell on Egypt in Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. They're in darkness. It's judgment, just like it was judgment in Egypt and Exodus. Exodus. And again, how do the people of the earth react? It's not repentance. They chew their tongues off. They are gnawing off their tongues. The Greek word is the same word that's used for scourging. To describe the way Jesus was whipped. The way Paul was whipped multiple times. That's what they're doing to their tongues. They're brutalizing their own tongues here. Why? Because they hate that the beast that they trusted in that they came to for security and safety and comfort, he's being exposed for what he is. Let me give you a fairly silly illustration to help you see what's happening. My oldest son despises wearing a coat. He wants to be in shorts and he wants to be in a t-shirt at all times. My younger son plays soccer. Soccer tends to happen in the fall and the spring. So imagine in April night where we're leaving for the soccer game and it's about 6.30 p.m., Game starts at 7. It's about 70 degrees and we're leaving. It's been a nice spring day. But mom and dad know because the phone tells us and from experience that when the sun goes down, well, it's going to get cold. It's going to drop to about 60 real fast. And so we say to them, hey, bring a jacket. I'm going to go bring a jacket. And sometimes as a parent, you say, get the jacket, right? And sometimes as a parent, you go, all right, well, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. And so you get up there to the field and we'll be sitting there and during the game I look over and the child is clearly freezing. He is being exposed as a fool for his decision not to wear a jacket. And then we ask him, son, are you cold? <laughs> no. And, and, he, and he, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he, and he just bears down into his stubbornness even more. And you're going, why? I was going to give you my jacket. I'm not even, I don't even need it. I'm actually kind of hot, right? That is a very, 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 very silly and, and, and fractionally small picture of the attitude of the hearts of the people of the earth here. As the governments of this world, which had been a symbol for their safety and security, come tumbling down, they're angry. God warned them, the dragon's beast will meet his end. God warned them, don't take this mark, but they did. And now, rather than admit that God is right, they will chew off their own tongues and curse at God for the pain of their bodies, and they will refuse to repent all the way to the end. Repent now. Repent now. If your heart is considering Jesus tonight and you're not gnawing your tongue off at the idea of surrendering to him, well then repent now while you have time. The sixth bowl is poured out in the Euphrates River in verse 12. And the results are that the water dries up. And that opens the way for these kings to come in from the east. And then the dragon and the beast and the false prophet release Three unclean spirits like frogs and they go about in the world performing signs. And what that does is it assembles the kings. It lures them in for the day of battle against the Lord God Almighty. They assemble at a place called Armageddon. There's a lot here. I'm going to take our time to parse through it as much as we can because this is one of those major points of departure with like a left behind or dispensational view. And so I want to recognize that this might be new for some of you. Um, The bowl is showing us the preparations for a final showdown between God and his enemies. The river is dried up, which means the invading armies are able to come into this place called Armageddon. The river is important. The name of the river is important. It's not the first time we've seen the Euphrates in Revelation. So we need to go back. What's going on with the Euphrates in chapter 9 when the trumpet was being blown? So then the angel, the sixth angel, blew his trumpet. That means it's, it's, uh, we're getting close to final judgment here, right? And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So clearly, the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl are connected. In Revelation 9, the Euphrates is this boundary that is holding back judgment. It's keeping it limited. But in Revelation 16, the Euphrates is dried up. The boundary is gone, which means the judgment's not going to be limited anymore. We can also see the importance of the Euphrates in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, Babylon had carried Israel off into exile, Judah off into exile to be uh, specific, and Isaiah predicted Babylon would be destroyed when the Euphrates dries up and the Persians come from where? The East. Who says to the deep, "Be dry"? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, "He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose"? Saying of Jerusalem, "She shall be beat, uh, be, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid." So the picture here is that the boundary of judgment is gone, and just as literal Babylon fell by God's purpose at the hands of the Persians in the Old Testament, the world represented by Babylon will fall in final judgment. The picture here is also a trap. The waters dry up, the kings of the earth, lured in by the unholy trinity, think, we can finally destroy the church! We can surround the saints! They're wrong. They're actually running into this place for their destruction. And they do this because they have fallen for the lies of the dragon and the, the beast and the false prophet. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet send out three demonic spirit frogs who go about performing signs and deceiving the kings. This is like the magicians in the generation of Pharaoh attempting to replicate the works of God. Exodus 7, verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Exodus 7, verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Counterfeit. Here, we see the same thing happening. They are speaking these lies, these counterfeit lies, for the purpose of gathering all the world's forces in one place against God. We won't see the results of the battle until chapters 19 and 20. In chapter 19, God destroys the beast and the false prophet and everybody who dwells on the earth. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then in chapter 20, Satan gets his day. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. They're at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea." And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So it's going to be a fight, right? Not really. A fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not much of a battle, is it? They surround the saints. All right, here we go. Nope. Just laid out, massacred, done over. He lost in a moment. It's not going to be hard for God when the time comes to defeat the enemy. He will do it. One little word shall fell him. There's been a lot of excitement over the years about the word Armageddon and the sight of it. It comes from a Hebrew word that means the Mount of Megiddo. The odd thing is that Megiddo is not a mountain at all. It's a broad plain. There's not even really anything there high enough to be a mountain, to look at and be like, maybe that's a mountain. And that alone is reason enough for me to not be literal about the site of the final battle between God and Satan in this particular text. Furthermore, Zechariah says Jerusalem, not Megiddo, will be the site of the final battle in the day of the Lord. And Zechariah 12, verse 3 prophesies, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Megiddo was a two-day walk, full day, two-day journey from Jerusalem. You can't take Zechariah and Revelation literally. You're going to have to make a choice if you want to take one or the other literally. I believe like the other word pictures throughout Revelation, we're once again getting a symbol to help us understand the reality of how things are going to be in the end. Megiddo was known for infamous battles that took place in the ancient world. The soil of Megiddo was soaked with blood. In the 15th century BC, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they went to war there. In the time of the judges, Deborah defeated the Canaanite kings there. In the 6th century BC, Egypt and Judea, they went to war there. That's where King Josiah died. And so with all this in mind, I don't think Megiddo is meant to be the address of the final battle. I actually do think that's Jerusalem. I instead think this is a picture of what the battle is going to be like. It's like John's readers are saying, Hey John, how awful is it going to be? How much blood and destruction is there going to be in the end? How thorough will the justice of God be? And the Lord is giving John a picture to respond with. Imagine Megiddo. It would be like John saying to us as a group of Americans, just think about Gettysburg. And we would go, oh, oh, okay. It was the battlefield that came to the Jewish mind when they thought of a war. Again, I don't have a time to do a deep dive on Zechariah 14. Maybe that'd be a fun thing for us to do at some point. But I think there's enough evidence there to conclude that history will culminate with a final battle. And I do think it's going to take place in Jerusalem. I believe that that is the physical site of the final scene of human history. And then the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. I think Megiddo is just a symbol to help us understand. That Armageddon is a symbol to help us understand what will take place on that fearful and wonderful day. Seventh bowl poured into the air in verse 17. God's voice comes from the temple from under the throne saying, It is done. What is done? His wrath. His purposes and history. His judgment. The old is done. All this history. It's done. It's time for new things now. Revelation 21 verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, "It is done." There's those words again. I am the alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment." Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, an unprecedented earthquake. You see that in verse 18? We got a preview of this earthquake with the opening of the sixth seal, which, remember, the opening of the sixth seal is final judgment. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Again, this is the end of the end. This is final judgment. The language in Revelation 6 makes that clear. The language here makes that clear. If you go to Zechariah and Zechariah 14, he actually predicts an earthquake taking place on the day of the Lord that splits the Mount of Olives in half. Another reason that I believe Jerusalem is the site of the final battle. Islands and mountains are disappearing in verse 20. Further evidence of God uncreating His world in judgment. And then we see that in this final judgment Babylon is in the crosshairs. We know that Babylon has fallen. It's been declared by the angels flying overhead in chapter 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Well, now we've got justice because the one who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God in verse 19 of chapter 16. It's like Moses, when he catches the Israelites with a golden calf, it's like, hey, we're not just going to melt this thing down, you guys are going to drink it. God forces Babylon to drink up the wrath that he has toward her for forcing the world to drink her sexual perversions. So whenever you look at this world and you're angry at what you're seeing in it, particularly in the area of sexuality, when you think they're coming for our kids, and there's this warped, perverse morality that's all around us, that's permeating our society, and you're going, man, is somebody going to do something? What's going to happen here? God sees every bit of it. Every marketing campaign, every word that's uttered against them, every move that's made, every parade, all of it. He sees it all, and he remembers Babylon in the end. And that should comfort you. That should also keep you from getting blinding rage in your head and heart at home. Because vengeance is the Lord's, it's not yours. You don't have to be angry. You can be righteously angry, and then you can praise God that he will make all things right in the end. And then go share the gospel with somebody in love. Babylon is Judge. She represents the evil world system, all of its faulty philosophies. It's the collective kingdom of man opposing God, seeking to make a name for themselves. It's what Babel has done from the very beginning, right? In Genesis 11, they try to build this tower with heavy stones up to heaven to make a name for themselves. Well, it's been reversed here because now they're not building a tower to heaven with heavy stones. Heavy stones are falling, great hailstones, 100 pounds each, are falling down out of the sky on the people of the earth. It is a total reversal of what you see in Genesis 11. Instead of um, building stones up, stones are flattening them and they turn their mouths against God even more they hate him all the way to the end it's 7:30 no it's 7:28 so i'm going to try to wrap up very very quickly with two brief points you might hear this and go is this all really going to happen man like god's really going to destroy the earth like this he's going to judge humanity like you're talking about my spouse you're talking about my cousin you talking about my kid? Is he really going to call uh, hailstones from the sky to flatten those that dwell on the earth? You might even say, I don't even know if I can believe God's just if he's going to do this. I don't think he's right to judge in this way. Well, if you look at verses 5 through 7, it helps us to at least understand He is right. He is just, and we are not. It it doesn't take away the heaviness of, man, there are people we love that are in danger. It doesn't take that away, but it does help us understand that God is in a position of righteousness forever and always. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then from the altar you hear, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so here's our second teaching point. God's final wrath is just and avenging. It is just and avenging. These are important statements from the angel in the altar here, and it's, it's, it's incredibly important that we ing- agree with them. We have to see God is not out of line here. In fact, he's firmly in line with what is right and what is just and what is true. We're not just talking about some lies. We're talking about participating in a world system and and joining in in a rebellion against God that results in the bloodshed of his children, his saints. Joining in with the, the dragon's regime. Bowing down to the beast. Going along with it. Now, having been a part of the shed blood, their drinking blood is no less than justice. It's rugged. It's a rugged picture of judgment. But it is in keeping with the language of the Old Testament prophets. In Isaiah, the Lord speaks to the prophet and says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Having an angel speaking here uh, shouldn't alarm us. We've seen angels speaking a lot. But it's a little more odd to see an altar talking because it's an inanimate object. The altar has been important in Revelation. It witnessed the suffering of the martyrs in Revelation 6. The prayers of suffering saints came up from the altar like incense in Revelation 8. Fire fell from this altar in judgment on the earth in Revelation 8. An angel of fire emerged from this altar in chapter 14 to gather the grapes for the harvest, for the judgment of unbelievers. So in other words, the altar has seen and heard it all. The altar has seen all the sin in the world, has seen the the sin of those who dwell in the world, has seen the suffering of the saints, has seen the prayers of the saints, heard the prayers of the saints. The, The altar has seen the partial and global judgment of the world, and the altar, having seen it all, concludes God is true, and He is just in His final judgment on creation. Purely, like 100% all the way through. There's not a speck of them that's out of line. Believing what the Bible says here will protect you. Again, from anger, from sadness, to know that vengeance belongs to the Lord, to know that God will make all things right in the end. When injustice tempts you to lash out in anger, to answer the world's violence with violence, remember, the Lord Almighty has just and true judgments. And He will make all things right in the end. But that means we've got to tell everybody to repent while there is time. Because His day of justice draws near. And for us, we must be awake and alert. And that's the final point tonight. This is where I'm just going to close up. Verse 15 Behold, I am coming like a thief. Jesus breaks in. I love it. In the middle of it, he's like, I've got something to say. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he speaks directly and says, Behold, listen, listen, I'm coming like a thief. And blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about and be seen exposed. So final teaching point, God's final wrath. It's a reason to be awake and alert. A thief comes to your house and catches you unaware, or they're not a very good thief. You don't want to be caught unaware about the return of Jesus. Matthew twenty four, forty three, but know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. If you know a thief is coming, you stay awake, you stay alert, you stay guarded. We know that the time of Jesus' return will come suddenly like a thief in the night. The great day of God the Almighty in verse 14, that's referring to Jesus' return. That day will come like a thief. And in light of that, we do not sleep. We are awake. We are alert. We keep His garments on. We cling to His righteousness. We walk in His commandments. And Jesus says we'll be blessed if we do this. I love this because it's the lost beatitude. It's another beatitude from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just like the ones that you find in Matthew 5. It's tucked away here in the 16th chapter of Revelation. He tells us, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In Revelation 3.18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy gold from me refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is no time to trust in yourself, in your own knowledge, in your own works and to take off the garments of the righteousness of Christ and to get in bed with Babylon. Her destruction is on the way. Keep your clothes on. Keep your righteous garments on. And what I mean by that is, Not go out there and earn your salvation every day. No, no, no. Jesus has earned your salvation for you. The Lord God has sent his son and he has died on the cross for us. The lamb of God has been slain. The lamb of God is is slain, but he stands, right? He's crucified, he is resurrected. He is our Lord and he has saved us and we rely on his grace alone for salvation and nothing else. And so keep doing that. That's that's what the Lord Jesus is telling you to do here. You'll be blessed if you keep doing that. Every day waking up and saying, I rely on Jesus. I don't rely on myself. I confess my sins to Him. God is faithful and just. Forgive me of my sins because what Christ has done for me and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to serve Him all over again. Day after day, I'm going to stack up one day of faithfulness after the next by His grace. But I am not going to stop clinging to His righteousness. I will not take these garments off and I will not get in bed with Babylon. Romans 16.20 is our benediction. It's what we say as a church every Sunday, except this past Sunday because somebody forgot. I don't. <laughs> the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and every enemy of His church. Hold on, Jesus' grace is with you. It's not that long yet. I'm going to pray us out to close us. Before I do, I recognize it's been heavy lately. All right, we. Plan out our sermons about eight months in ahead. We plan out Sundays. We plan out Wednesdays. What we don't plan out, and I really will never plan out, is how these things kind of like cross pollinate. We just leave that to the Lord. We we'll let the Lord do the cross section work. So it has been heavy. We got Judgment and Revelation, and we got Tyndale dying on Sunday morning, and this past week Ananias and Sapphira are dying for very different reasons. Um, the Lord brings us through different seasons of teaching in His time. And let's just be attentive to him and listen to what he is saying to our church through his word in his perfect time. And uh, that being said, this Sunday is about revival, <laughs> all right? So maybe a little bit more chipper than tonight. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this church and the people in it. Lord God, I pray right now. Um, I, I, Lord, the, the thing I just want to do as we close is just to pray for the lost people in our lives that we love. going to take 30 seconds of silence, Lord, and, and we'll all just in our hearts just rattle off the names of people that we want to see saved. We'll start with the ones closest to us in our home. We'll work our way out from there for 30 seconds. God, hear these names. Lord, you love us and we love these people. I pray that you would help us to show your love to them, that you would give us the opportunity even this week, and that our familiarity with passages like this would not allow us to take lightly your judgment, that we would stay awake and alert and we would preach the gospel boldly with as much love as we got in us just to represent you well, God. Let us be faithful because we know that the day, the great day of the Lord Almighty draws near.